Okay, guys, I am, I am beginning to record now. This is going to be one of the audio file contributions to the content at the newsletter. So, um, I'll, I'll begin. I'm going to read the post, the double life by Glenn Lowry. The double life in autobiographical sketch. As many of you know, I'm in the process of writing a memoir. It's currently entitled The Enemy Within. I've had to work through a lot of memories. I've had to find my way back to incidents and images from the past, some of them pleasant, some of them disturbing. It's not an easy task. In fact, it's messy business. Memories aren't like dogs. They don't necessarily come when you call them. So in trying to organize my thoughts, I've done a lot of preparatory note-taking and writing, stuff that may not end up in the memoir, at least not in its present form, but that serves as a tool to help excavate old thoughts and feelings and make something more coherent out of them. So I am going to share some notes with you, a sketch of my early life, the Southside milieu in which I grew up, and a bit about my early academic success. Fans of The Glenn Show will find the broad outlines familiar, but I include more detail here than I have in the past, some of it beautiful, some of it ugly. In writing this memoir, I have tried to be as honest as I can about where I came from and what led me to where I am. Not everything I experienced was good. Not everything I did was admirable. But for the book to be worth anything, it has to be truthful. So here goes. The Chicago of my youth exuded beauty and brilliance amidst compromised standards and awful pain. I was born to working-class African-American parents early in the post-war baby boom and attended public schools, five different ones before I had finished the fifth grade. I have vivid memories of growing up in the city's south side neighborhoods in the 1950s and 60s. I can recall the hustling, the rent parties, the ever-present jazz and blues music. The strangers who let rooms from my auntie Elois, who also sheltered my mother, my sister, and me. I recall with affection my auntie's husband, Uncle, call me when they start integrating the money, Mooney. Uncle Mooney. He was a self-made small businessman, a barber, a shopkeeper, who was also an inveterate skeptic about the virtues of racial integration. And in my mind's eye, I can still see the faces of the many great aunts and uncles on my mother's side of the family who had migrated up north from rural Mississippi in the years after World War I. There was premature death and rampant adultery. There were hipsters and gangsters with style. And everywhere there was enormous social vitality. The South Side of Chicago was alive with all the good and all the bad that comes with life. My mother's two brothers embodied these contradictions. Uncle Adler was a brilliant man who graduated at the top of his class from Northwestern University Law School in the early 1950s at a time when Black people simply didn't do such things. I recall his stunning eloquence, his erudition. He inspired me. But, and tragically, he was disbarred after getting caught up in some shady family business. Eventually, he drank himself to death. Uncle Alfred looms in my memory as larger than life. I remember his charm, spiritual intensity, and physical beauty, but also his polygamous ways. 
He had overlapping families, fathering 22 children altogether. Even so, he was in his way the quintessential family man, remaining devoted until the end of his days to every single one of his progeny. Our close family friend, Boo Boo, was an excellent student, but his father fatally shot himself in the head while sitting on my mother's living room couch. When I was a child, a great aunt took care of me while my mother was at work and at her home, my aunt's home. I was sexually molested by both male and female relatives. Paul, the quiet kid down the block, an outstanding Little League shortstop, ended up overdosing on heroin at 18. Other classmates followed his path, ending up addicted or dead or in prison. Cousin Ronnie was strung out. He'd stop by my house sometimes to get something to eat and then also steal money from my mother's purse. Compassionate to a fault, she knew exactly what he was doing and let him. I recall my mother's sweetly melodic voice and giving heart. Uncle Mooney's enterprise, Auntie Lois' steadfast love of family, her elegance and ambition. I recall the imperial style of the great aunts who had managed to make a way out of no way in the years after the Great Depression, their silverware and tablecloths, the ivory and mahogany furniture, the crystal. Their homes were draped in Persian rugs and lace curtains, and they wore mink and fox and chinchilla stoles out on the town. Style was the thing, and everyone seemed to have it. I can recall watching my mother dress for Saturday night as she slipped into stockings, girdles, brassieres, and garters, applied powder and nail polish, and arranged her hair. She put on her face before a forest of bottled perfumes, colognes, creams, lotions, and oils arrayed on her dresser. Outside of school, life consisted of Sunday socials, fashion shows, teas, bid with card games, cookouts, feasts, and parties whether it was a holiday or not. It was a world of close-knit kinship and envy, of mutual aid and betrayal, of wise counsel and gossip, and of domestic violence, incest, and incessant hustling. A world where any number of iceberg slims bumped up against cadres of black Muslim devotees hawking their newspapers to passers-by at crowded intersections. This was the social world that shaped me. When I was in high school, I was a singular prodigy. I aced my classes and graduated at 16 and then attended the Illinois Institute of Technology. But outside the classroom, I was just another character, no more or less enmeshed in drama and temptation than anyone else in my family. I met Charlene, the woman who would become my first wife, at the Bethel AME Church, the one my family attended. But before the idea of marriage crossed our minds, she was pregnant with my child. At 18, I had to drop out and get a full-time job to support her and our daughters, Lisa and Tamara. My academic aspirations, well, might have ended there. But I began taking a few classes in a community college and from there received a scholarship to attend the elite Northwestern University on the shores of Lake Michigan, just north of the city where I studied mathematics and philosophy mainly, but minored in economics and became acquainted with the German language. I worked full-time at night as a clerk in a printing plant for five years, and I was also full-time student for the last three of those years. A grueling existence. We had no money, and I had almost no time for either leisure or enjoying my young family. 
After transferring to Northwestern, it seemed as though I was living in two worlds. The hip, energetic, seductive, tragic, black Southside milieu, and the elevated, intellectual world of ideas that I associated with a leafy green lakeside campus in Evanston. I strove desperately to build a bridge between those two worlds. When the Zulus produce a Tolstoy, I shall read him. The great novelist and Chicagoan Saul Bellow is reputed to have said, with that disturbing line, I suppose he meant the counter-critics of Western intellectual hegemony. I didn't know who Saul Bellow was when I began my studies at Northwestern, but he had intuited just why attaining mastery over the technical curriculum in college came to matter so much to me. In effect, I undertook to dispel doubts, my own and others, about my abilities by producing work that would command a skeptic's attention. I came to believe that I could counter the burden of racial stigma by using my newly discovered intellectual gifts to beat the man at his own game. I got such joy from the study of advanced mathematics and economics as a student at Northwestern between 1970 and 1972. I just loved math. I loved this formalism and precision. The thrill of satisfaction I got when finally mastering the logic of an elaborate proof was immense. It felt empowering to see the pieces of reasoning come together to behold this edifice of logical entailment precisely knitted into a coherent whole like a piece of clockwork. Incompleteness theorems, paradoxes, orders of infinity, Cantor diagonalization, Hilbert spaces, separating hyperplanes, and on and on. These things thrilled me. They still do. I graduated and was accepted into economics, the PhD program at MIT. But my third child, Alden, came along a year after Tamara. He was the product of an extramarital relationship. It was illicit fatherhood again. Rather than acknowledging the child and the mother, I made the haunting choice to live in denial of this, to eschew my paternal responsibilities. I turned my back on Alden moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and kept the terrible secret from my wife and much of my family. This was not the first double-life episode in my story, nor the last, but it was a festering wound, nonetheless, one that has taken decades to begin to heal. So, there was pain in my departure from Chicago in 1972. But as a Ford Foundation doctoral fellow studying at the best economics program on the planet, I had finally found my niche. No place was close to MIT in the early 1970s. I mean, Paul Krugman and Ben Bernanke were students. Joe Stiglitz was a peripatetic young scholar who could often be found hanging around. I studied under some of the greats of 20th century economics. Paul Samuelson had just received his Nobel Prize. Franco Modigliani and Bob Solo were about to get theirs. Peter Diamond and Robert Merton Jr., more recent Nobel laureates, were also among my teachers. I could go on. And there I was, sitting at the front of every classroom with my hand constantly raised, equations on the blackboard, a piece of cake for me. And all the white boys, and that's how I would have put it in those days, were asking, Glenn, what do you think about this problem, sir? One moment I was a marginal black kid attending a community college that met in one wing of a high school building, and the next I was a phenom at the top of my class 
at one of the most rarefied technical programs of study you could imagine. That was a staggering transformation for me in many levels. At first, my thought was, I can't believe it's true. There must be some mistake. But this was my new reality. For me, it was not about race. It was not about poverty. It turned out that at the end of the day, one in a thousand people can follow some extraordinary complex derivation to the end and repeat it backwards. And I, Glenn Cartman Lowry, was one of those people. I simply hadn't known I had it in me. It was so exhilarating, so empowering. There were students from Japan and Russia and Italy and India, all of whom had been among the most promising young scholars in their home universities, all of whom had migrated to one of the best economics programs in the world. And there I was, a working class kid off Chicago's South Side, standing shoulder to shoulder with them. These early professional triumphs contributed mightily to my ability to step away from liberal orthodoxy years later. In my own mind, I was Glenn fucking Lowry. El bad one, as my jocular black colleague Marcus Alexis called me. In those years, you couldn't tell me anything that I didn't already know. I left graduate school changed. I was no longer the person I had been four years earlier. My marriage to Charlene collapsed. My imposter syndrome, the feelings of being fraudulent and undeserving, waned. When I was teaching at the University of Michigan in the late 1970s, a senior colleague reassured me, there was no affirmative action involved in your case, Glenn. We would have hired you even if you'd been Jewish. <laughs> he was half joking, but it was music to my ears at the time. It was exactly what I needed to hear. That wasn't the end, of course. I was 27 when I received my PhD from MIT. By age 33, I had become a tenured professor of economics at Harvard, the first black person to hold that position. I remarried at 34, but by age 39, the enemy within had reasserted itself. Addicted to drugs and struggling to hold together yet another double life, I became an inpatient at McLean Psychiatric Hospital. The tension that produced me, the brilliance and the darkness both, were back and on full display.